So two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus in the garden, one of Jesus's most painful moments. And we, we looked at him prayerfully facing pain. He told his disciples, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful as unto death. Jesus felt a deep emotional internal pain as he was approaching the cross, as he was getting closer to what he knew he came into the world for, namely to suffer and to die as an atoning sacrifice for the sin of the world. And as that hour was approaching, Jesus was fully aware and the pressure was on and he modeled for us. We looked at how Jesus modeled for us how to face pain in a healthy, godly way. So many people who encounter pain in this life, which is inevitable in a post-Genesis 3 world, so many people tend to run to all kinds of things that are unhealthy and even sinful to try to medicate and escape the pain that they're feeling. But in Jesus' most painful, crushing moments... He turned to the Father in prayer as it was his practice his entire life. He lived a prayerful life, surrendered to the will of the Father. And he prayed and he poured out his heart to the Father. And he wrestled in prayer and stood against the darkness that was coming upon his soul and soon coming upon his body as he bore the weight the sin of the world, the weight of God's wrath and judgment for sin upon him in our place. And Jesus also invited his disciples to be present with him in his pain. We looked at that, how he called James and John and Peter, James and John to, to join him, to watch and pray. And he let them know what was going on. He didn't just stuff his pain. He talked to the father about it and ultimately looked to the father. But he also let his companions know that he was going through a difficult time and invited them to be present and to be prayerful, more so for their sake. But as human beings, we need relationship and we need to be able to communicate when we're struggling. And it's okay to say, I'm not okay right now. This hurts right now. I'm struggling right now. It doesn't, it's not supposed to be like this. Right? We feel that. We feel, why, God? I don't understand what's going on. And yet, for Jesus, Jesus stepped into that pain purposefully, knowing that it would bring about redemption for us so that we might be delivered eternally from pain and suffering, separated from God. That we might be with Him forever, with joy and peace and comfort and life everlasting. And so we're going to pick back up here in um, Mark chapter 14, verse uh, 43, actually, through uh, 72. And we're going to look at Jesus betrayed, arrested, and abandoned. Jesus was betrayed, arrested, and abandoned. When was the last time you experienced, or have you ever experienced a close friend say something or do something to you that was so painful 
And it felt so painful, partly because of how close that friend was and the bond and the love that you had developed with that friend or perhaps family member. Okay? Can, can you think of a time when you felt that sting? Well, know that Jesus felt that when he was betrayed. Know that he stepped into the pain of being betrayed and abandoned. He felt the sting of people leaving him. And even more so, the father turning his face away as he hung on that cross and he bore the weight of our sin. And so we're going to look in Mark chapter 14. We're going to look at Jesus facing this. Jesus stepping into a moment of betrayal. Stepping into a moment of being arrested as a criminal. Jesus experiencing a moment when all his close companions split. And we're going to look at where Jesus experienced a moment where he was condemned by the religious community. And he did that all for you and for me. And so let's look at Mark 14, 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, and one of the twelve, and with him, a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him, lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him and at once said, Rabbi. And he kissed him and they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew the sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber? With swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching. And you did not cease me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. This is the word of the Lord. Here's our big idea from this passage. Jesus was betrayed arrested, abandoned, and unjustly condemned so that we might be accepted, forgiven, justified, and with him forever. Jesus was betrayed, arrested, abandoned, unjustly condemned so that we might be accepted, forgiven, and justified, and with him forever. Now first, let's look at Jesus' betrayal. The gospel writers called Judas the betrayer, the betrayer, right? Judas had some shady stuff going on for quite some time. It wasn't just a blowout driving down the road for Judas. It was a slow leak that was occurring, a sinful slow leak that was occurring in his integrity and in his character and his lack of integrity. He was... According to the Gospel of John, he was taking from the from the money bag. He was a thief. And he had this opportunity to betray Jesus for a little bit of money. To, to, to give up 
all that he had experienced and all the blessings that were right before him that he tasted of, that he experienced the, uh, in, with Jesus in ministry. He walked with him who's full of grace and truth and he saw Jesus do miracles, heal the sick, raise the dead, open blind eyes. He saw Jesus set people free who were demonically oppressed. How could he do such a thing? How could anybody do such a thing having come so close to God in the flesh? Having seen and tasted and experienced what he did. Jesus knew from the beginning. And, and what, what also baffles me is how could Jesus just let him roll with it? Knowing that it would happen. John 6 tells us that Jesus knew from the beginning those who believed in him and, and the one who would betray him. So Jesus wasn't caught off guard and he, he wasn't surprised by this. But he stepped right into it because there was divine purpose. It was a part, another piece of the puzzle of the Father's plan in bringing redemption to the world. And so they call him a betrayer. And, and Judas betrayed Jesus with an affectionate expression, a kiss. He came up and he... And he led a mob, armed mob, to where Jesus was, an intimate place in the garden. No doubt where Jesus had taken his disciples before to get away. And he led them to that place and he came up to him and he kissed them. He kissed them on the cheek, which is an affectionate greeting. And he even called him rabbi and, and this was his plan this was premeditated he had thought about this he had agreed to get some money for doing this and so he went through with it can you imagine in that moment was what it must have felt like to see jesus's eyes for judas i mean surely there was some callousness there and surely he had to do a lot of mental and internal gymnastics to go through with this thing nevertheless he did he approaches Jesus and he says, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him. Andreas Kotzenberger says in his book, The Final Days of Jesus, while normally a kiss signified deep love and affection, in the present case, it marks Judas's betrayal of Jesus, the ultimate treachery. So after greeting Jesus with the customary address, Rabbi, Judas Kisses his master, consummating the betrayal. As Luke records, Jesus asked Judas, Would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? This is at once a gentle rebuke and a deeply felt acknowledgement of the unspeakable tragedy and travesty of justice that are about to unfold. As I was pondering this and I... I I have a hard time imagining anything that could feel so painful um, as having a companion like this betray you, premeditating a plan, a plot to, to, to have you arrested. And oftentimes when I've talked to those who have walked through or walking through divorce, I, I bring up this particular incident with with uh, Jesus and Judas. 
Because no doubt when there is unfaithfulness in a marriage and a husband or a wife is unfaithful to their spouse, no doubt it feels like betrayal. One whom you're most intimate with and loved and are committed to turns their back on you. And all of a sudden you feel like you don't know that person anymore. And they, 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 they do what's unthinkable. It's baffling. And I can't think of a more painful experience to walk through that and then to walk through a divorce following. One of the most painful things I think someone can go through. And so I've told those brothers or sisters walking through that, that Jesus can sympathize with your pain and your feeling of betrayal. It hurts. And Jesus sees and he cares and he knows. And it's not supposed to be like that. Marriage is designed to be one man, one woman for life in a loving commitment. And so Jesus walked through this betrayal with Judas kissing him uh, with this plan. And he did it for you and for me. He went through with this, knowing that this would happen. He wasn't surprised by it. He wasn't caught off guard by it. It was that the scripture might be fulfilled. He knew it was coming. And he did it so that you and I might be accepted and experience his loving, covenant-keeping faithfulness. His loving faithfulness for all eternity. So that you and I don't have to experience betrayal. He is a faithful Savior and a faithful Lord. And then we see Jesus is arrested. They laid hands on him and they seized him. David Garland says, ironically, Jesus castigated the the temple for being a robber's den instead of a house of prayer for all nations. That was in Mark 11. Now, temple goons arrest him in the middle of his prayer as if he is a robber. You see, Jesus stirred things up in the temple because there was, there was a lot of trading and selling, a lot of business going on, and it, and it attracted robbers who were distracting sincere seekers and sincere worshipers from encountering God in prayer. And it grieved Jesus that he went in and in anger, he overturned the tables, moved with the heart of God. And he said, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer. Now here comes, comes these guys who are in charge of the temple along with Roman soldiers to cease Jesus and arrest Jesus. And Jesus is praying. Jesus is modeling what they should have been modeling and leading the people into. And so he's arrested. He's treated like a criminal so that you and I might be treated as righteous. Jesus is shamefully arrested. It's the most unjust trial and arrest. False accusations abounding. Numerous accusations abounding towards Jesus. And he took it. He took it silently. He didn't try to justify and defend himself. He embraced it knowing that this was his lot and knowing that they were breathing out lies and none of them could even agree with each other. And in that moment when they came armed to arrest Jesus, 
Jesus could have fought. It's not that Jesus was too weak to defend himself. He's powerful. He's so powerful that in John's gospel, when they ask, are you Jesus? He says, I am he. And you know what happened to that whole mob? They fell down. They fell down on the ground. I am he. Right? Jesus said in Matthew, he said, I can call thousands of angels right now to come. Peter, I don't need you to pull out the sword here. I don't need you to fight. I I can call thousands of angels. It's not that I can't defend myself. This is a part of the divine plan. And the nature of the kingdom of God is not, it's a nonviolent kingdom. Let's look over uh, at what, well, let me, let me just do a little side note talking about the nature of the kingdom of God. And here it was obviously misunderstood. It was, it was a common misunderstanding of what it would look like when the Messiah came the first time. Many zealots, religious, political zealots who were, were waiting for a Messiah who would take up swords and fight, were thinking that if this guy's really the Messiah then he would be fighting at some point. Now, some theologians think that maybe Judas was trying to to push his hand to to take some action, right? We, We know at least he was motivated by greed. There was greed there going on. Um... But nevertheless, he misunderstood the kingdom of God, and even Peter seemed to misunderstand the nature of the kingdom of God here. Because in that moment when he was arrested, he drew a sword and he struck the servant of the high priest and he cut off his ear. Now, Mark doesn't mention that this is Peter here, right? And remember, uh, Mark is, uh, uh, Peter is kind of dictating and Mark is writing from, from under Peter's influence, the gospel of Mark. And perhaps it would have been dangerous as early as Mark was written it was the first of the four Gospels to be written. As early as it is written, perhaps it would have been dangerous for Peter's name to be mentioned in here that he pulled out a sword and he cut off Mal- Malchus's ear. Okay, But John, nevertheless, who wrote his Gospel much later, he mentions Peter's name in there. But notice the nature of the kingdom here. here here's the misunderstanding. One, that, that okay, it's 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 violence let's fight it's time to fight jesus and i'll and remember peter said he would fight for he would die for jesus he would go all the way and here he's trying to show his commitment the gospel of luke tells us that jesus takes his cut off ear and he heals it he heals malchus's ear But Jesus says, have you come against me as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? He says, day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching. How did Jesus advance the kingdom? How did he advance the kingdom agenda? It was through teaching the truth of scripture, teaching the word of God. We see in John 18, when Jesus is standing before Pilate, He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. 
So Jesus didn't take up arms and fight. He didn't try to lead a revolt, a revolution with violence. He embraced what was before him. And in that moment, we can learn a lesson from from him and how we as Christians are to advance the cause of Christianity and the kingdom of God. We see that God's kingdom advances through witnesses speaking truth. Jesus says, I, I was in the temple teaching the whole time. No one, no one sees me. I wasn't doing anything wrong. I was teaching the word of God. I was bearing witness to the truth. I mean, look back at Mark 4 when Jesus talked about the kingdom of God being like a, a, a farmer who went and he sowed seeds, right? And the word of God is the seeds are the word of God. And the four different soils were hearers, right? And we see that there's good soil that the seed falls on and the kingdom grows and expands through the farmer sowing the, the truth of God's word. See the book of Acts. How the kingdom of God expanded through the book of Acts. And Jesus said, you will be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, my witnesses. And to the ends of the earth. And we see throughout Acts these summary statements of the word of God increasing. The number of disciples increasing. And, and people being added to the church. We see the kingdom of God coming through the proclamation of truth. And through prayer. Not through bearing swords taking up clubs and fighting back. Many false religions throughout history have tried to advance their cause through violent means. And even professors of Christianity, particularly the Roman church, would use uh, crusades and, and force to advance their cause inappropriately so. And as Christians, we are not to turn to violent means to advance the cause of the kingdom because god's kingdom is not of this world it's different it operates different we also see that the nature of god's kingdom um, that it advances through uh, people um, speaking the truth jesus said um, to Pilate, he said so you are a king jesus answered you say that i'm a king for this purpose i was born and for this purpose i've come into the world to bear witness of the truth and everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. Then Pilate wants to go philosophical on him and go, what is truth? What is truth, right? And so Jesus essentially gets murdered for bearing witness to the truth, for speaking the truth, for confronting lies, for confronting hypocrites who twist the truth of God's word. And bearing, he, and we see in John 14 that, and we'll look at this in a moment, that he says he's the Messiah, straight up. He's asked point blank. And at that point, the religious leaders had enough. And they proceed with killing him. We also see that the nature of the kingdom advances through prayer. Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Peter lacked some misunderstanding of the kingdom advancing and what, what was on the agenda in this moment. And if Peter would have been, as Jesus told him to, watch and pray, perhaps he would have been ready for this moment that he was, this moment of temptation that he was facing 
as Thomas Constable says, he says, Peter's lack of prayer resulted in a lack of poise that contrasts sharply with Jesus' behavior. He had not only boasted too much and prayed too little, but he also acted too violently. Right? Jesus was teaching his followers how to fight. And it wasn't through physical violence. It was through getting on their knees in prayer and proclaiming the word of God. The sword that Jesus caused his followers to pick up and wield is the sword of the spirit, the word of God. That we are to tear down strongholds and lies of the enemy. Everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, as Paul says. And so we see the nature of the kingdom that was misunderstood in that moment. And Jesus stood firm, advancing the kingdom agenda. We also see within Jesus' statement, divine purpose in what was happening Jesus wasn't caught off guard. This was all a part of the plan. It was unfolding. Now, it may baffle us that the Father's plan was unfolding through sinful actions of men, sinful actions of the Romans, sinful actions of the Jews, sinful actions of Judas, and even sinful actions of Peter. And the disciples, they abandoned him. And so he said in verse 49, after they seized him, he said, but let the scripture be fulfilled. This is a part of the plan. The the Messiah must suffer and die. Remember what he said in Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here it is. It's happening. Now's the time for Jesus to give his life as a ransom for many. There's divine purpose in what's happening right here. And it's the most unjust trial ever. It's one of the greatest injustice we've ever seen in history. That Jesus would be treated. The, the one person who deserved to be treated the best. With, with all goodness. And honor, respect, and homage was being treated as a criminal. Peter got it later on when he quoted, when, when, and Luke quotes him in Acts 22-23. He said, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible For him to be held by it. Now it's interesting here because we see the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man working together. Though it was God's divine purpose and plan to, to have Jesus killed for the sins of the world. God would still hold accountable those who sinfully crucified him. And did wrong to him. You crucified him and killed him. Peter confronted the. The Jews with those words when he was preaching at Pentecost. And then Acts 4, uh, the, the churches, they, they, they start praying in, in response to um, the threats of uh, the religious leaders. 
Verse 27, for truly in the city they were gathered against your holy servants whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So here we see divine purpose in what was happening. And yes, Herod was wrong and Pilate was wrong and the the Romans, the Gentiles were wrong and the Israelites were wrong in arresting and trying and condemning and having Jesus crucified. But it was the Father's will and it was the Father's plan so that good might come to you and I. So that you and I might experience salvation. Remember Jesus said in John chapter 10. He said I lay my life down. That I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received. From my father. So Jesus was proceeding. With a sense of divine purpose this is according to the scriptures and one of the things i want to encourage you to do over the next week is to dig into the purpose of the meaning and the purpose of the death of the son of god what is what does it mean that jesus is crucified next week lord willing we're going to look at the crucifixion we're going to camp out on the details of what happened but i want you to ask yourself and ask god this week and search the scriptures as to why did this happen why why because the biblical authors spend a good amount of ink telling us why explaining what this means these very things that were happening to jesus okay most most christians if you were to ask jesus why Jesus suffered and died. If you were to ask Christians, why did Jesus suffer and die? How many, and I'm, I'm going to ask you just how many off the top of your head, how many reasons can you give? Why did Jesus suffer and die? Okay. He loves us. Yep. Bring reconciliation. Please the father to glorify himself. To bring life. It's good. It's a handful. Okay, there's a lot more. There's a book I want to recommend to you called 50 Reasons Why Jesus Suffered and Died. One of my favorites written by John Piper. And he, from the scripture, explains 50 reasons why the Son of God suffered and he died. So let's spend some time thinking about that, pondering this week. Why did Jesus go through what he went through? Well, Paul and Peter give us a couple of of, uh, insights here. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Peter, in his letter, 1 Peter has a couple of purpose statements about the death of the son of god the suffering and the death for this you have been called because christ suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps he was an example for us he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds You have been healed. 
1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Here's some meaning behind why Jesus suffered and died that the apostles explained in their epistles. The apostles built upon the life and the teaching of Jesus and just continued. They carried the torch and they built upon what Jesus taught and what he lived to accomplish and died to accomplish. And so we see that Jesus was betrayed. We see that Jesus was arrested. We also see that Jesus was abandoned. And he was abandoned for us so that we might never be forsaken. He felt forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you and I might eternally never be forsaken, but have his presence with us always, his grip of grace on our lives always throughout all eternity. He's got us. Let the weight of this verse sink in, verse 50, after they arrested him. It says, they, they all left him and fled. They all left him. This is the 11. Judas had already left him to betray him. They all left him and fled. Jesus went to do what he came to do all by himself. There was no one else that could bear the weight of the sin of the world and be the atoning sacrifice for sin. He had to go through this for us. William Lane Theologian says a Messiah imprisoned, abandoned by his followers and delivered helpless into the hands of his foes represented an impossible conception. Anyone who in such circumstance proclaimed himself to be the Messiah could not fail to be a blasphemer, blasphemer who dared to make a mockery of the promises given by God to his people. So he's abandoned. I love how Peter quotes uh, Psalm 16, how in, in Acts, and he says he won't leave, he won't abandon his soul to Sheol, referring to the resurrection. He's raised up from the dead. But Jesus walks through this painful moment, this dark, difficult moment of abandonment. And if you've ever felt that, you've ever felt abandoned by your friends, Left alone, you've struggled with loneliness and, and you're like, where is my family? Where are my friends? Know that Jesus has walked through that time and he can sympathize with you and he can aid you through your difficulty of feeling abandoned, feeling betrayed, feeling falsely accused. Then we see this other guy, and I think this is kind of funny here. In verse 51, I like to call him the New Testament streaker. And the young man followed, he didn't say who it is, with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. And they, and then, but he left his linen cloth and ran away naked. The New Testament streaker. Okay? Church history tells us that this was Mark. We don't have solid evidence for this. We don't know for sure. 
that this was Mark, but if it was, I can see why he didn't mention his name in there. I wouldn't either. (laughs) Because that was a shameful thing. He didn't run away naked because he wanted anybody to see him at all. It was a shameful thing that he was running away, cowardly running away. And he was so trying to get away that he was willing to leave his clothes behind just to get free so he wouldn't get arrested with Jesus. So we see that those 11 earlier and um, those 11 earlier who had mentioned they would die for Jesus along with Peter. Yeah, we'll go with we're with you to the end. Now, all of a sudden, they're cowardly running away. They're running away. They're afraid. And Jesus is left alone, abandoned. And even Mark here, or seemingly seems like Mark ran away. Naked. Now, I want to move to verse 60, where Jesus is standing before the religious leaders. And the high priest stood up in verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What, what is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Like a lamb, Peter says, or Isaiah 53. He was silent. He was led to the slaughter. And again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated on the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, here's here's also the nature of the kingdom of God. And particularly in, in the second coming, when we see the kingdom come in its fullness. There's going to be some swords. There's going to be a sword drawn. There's going to be some slaughtering. There's going to be judgment for those who have rejected and rebelled against God. But there will be salvation for those of us who have trusted in Jesus and bowed our knee to Jesus. I mean, read Revelation chapter 19 if you want to see more detail. John capturing this moment of Jesus coming back with power. But here we see Jesus manifesting meekness, meekness and humility. Though he could have drawn from that power, though he could have called legions of angels, he had an assignment. And that was not to come and condemn the world, but to save the world through his sacrifice, through his life being laid down, to overcome evil and death with good And with his life being crucified. And so he confesses his Messiahship here. He says, I am. Finally, we see a clear confession before the religious community. And remember, throughout the Gospel of Mark, he's careful not to uh, confess this prematurely, openly, because this would lead to either, either him being, you know, lifted up as the Messiah. Okay, do your thing, Messiah. Or his crucifixion. And we see that coming. And so he confesses, yes, I am. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. William Lane says, Jesus added that he was not just a human Messiah, but the divine Son of Man. The passages he claimed to fulfill predicted his enthronement in heaven following his resurrection and his return 
to the earth to earth with God's authority to establish a worldwide kingdom. As such, he was claiming to be the judge of those who sat to judge him. Jesus knew that this confession would seal his conviction. Power was a recognized um, circumlocution for God. And so Jesus says, yes, you're going to see the Son of Man. Every eye will see him. Every eye will see Christ when he returns. Every knee will bow before him. And what joy it is for us who bow our knees now, who confess Jesus as Lord now, who receive the benefit of his salvation now while there is time. We also see Jesus was condemned right after that. The high priest tore his garments, which this was illegal, forbidden in the law for the high priest to do that with their garments. Leviticus, it tells us this. And he said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? They all condemned him as deserving death. And some of them began to spit on him. And cover his face and strike him, saying, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. So Jesus in the garden began to experience internal internal and psychological pain. To the point of sweating drops of blood. Now it is physical, external. Where he's getting hit and mocked and spit upon shamefully. He's condemned. And he was condemned for us. He's condemned for you and I that we might be justified, accepted, justified, made right with God. That's why Paul can write in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's because Jesus was condemned in our place as a criminal, innocent, in our place. And so he can justify us who rightfully deserve condemnation and rightfully deserve death. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And lastly, we see that he was denied by Peter. Verse 66. And as as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. Come on, Peter, tell the truth here. This is the apostle Peter here. I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, you, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse upon himself, on himself and to swear, I don't know this man whom you speak. Now, at least he wasn't cursing other people, invoking a curse on other people. But he was invoking a curse on himself. And he was swearing with oath that he doesn't know this man. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. 
And Peter remembered how Jesus said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And look at this last little statement. And he broke down and wept. He broke down and wept. Jesus was denied by Peter. And this was written for us. This was written for us. Because we see in Peter failure that we can all identify with. And we see that Peter's failure led him to repentance, but was also met with grace by the Lord Jesus and restoration by the Lord Jesus. And I'm so thankful we have the story here. I'm so thankful that the the biblical authors don't hold back the, the bloopers and the failures and the sins of the leaders, right? And that, that, that points to the authenticity of the scripture. Because cause, cause God lets us see these bloopers here with folks like Peter to remind us that there's really only one savior. There's really only one who is perfect, who's righteous, who's a spotless lamb without sin. But Peter remembered, he remembered what Jesus said and he was proud and boastful to disagree with Jesus and, 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 uh, and, and not think that he would, he would, to think that he would stand when Jesus said he was going to fall. And so we see Peter's sorrow and repentance in this verse. He broke down and wept. Now, think about the contrast here between Peter and Judas. Both of them failed significantly. Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him, right? No doubt they both felt bad for what they did. No doubt they both had a guilty conscience. But, but we see, I think, what, what Paul describes as godly grief here in Peter. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death and we know that judas went and he took his life after betraying jesus right and and so one of the differences between godly grief or godly sorrow and worldly sorrow is that godly sorrow is sorrowful over the damaged relationship worldly sorrow or grief is sorrowful over the loss of benefits or blessings, right? And so here, like David, when he repented in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. The focus is this way, the relationship that had been damaged through sin. That's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, that, leads to, that produces repentance that leads to life. Charles Spurgeon, in commenting on this verse, says that repentance is wrought by the Spirit of God, but he works in us, he works it in us by leading us to think upon the evil of sin. Peter could not help weeping when he remembered his grievous fault. All right, so let me let me close in a couple points of application there, and we'll look at um, a list here from Spurgeon. 
Um, avoid trying to advance God's kingdom through inappropriate means. Taking up swords and guns and clubs, crusading in the name of Jesus, right? The kingdom of God advances through prayer and proclamation of the gospel. Jesus modeled it for us, and he called his disciples to do the same. Remember with gratitude that Jesus took your place in suffering and death to ransom you. He gave his life as a ransom for many. And saints, you are included in that number. He gave his life to buy you, to ransom you, to rescue you so that you might be set free. And lastly, allow godly grief or sorrow over your sin to lead you to change your attitudes and actions. Because many of us are just like Peter, overconfident in our strengths. We think we're further along than further along than we really are. We have a tendency to boast, to boast about tomorrow, to boast about our plans, to take pride in what we have or what we've accomplished. And Jesus lets us experience some resistance and some failure as we walk in that pride, so that we might learn to live and stand in the grace of God and walk by the Spirit and not by our flesh. And so, Charles Spurgeon gives a couple points of reflection here. This goes with with application as we look at Peter's grief and sorrow over denying Jesus. Spurgeon says, think upon our transgressions while unrepentant. Are you unrepentant in an area of sin in your life? Think about it. Just reflect on it. Don't ignore it. Our tendency is to ignore it, to justify it. Don't think about it. Think about it. Think about it long enough to be grieved by it, that that sin is wrong. Think about our resistance of light and conscience and the Holy Spirit before we were overcome by divine grace. Think about our small progress in the divine life. Think about our backslidings and heart wanderings. Think about our neglect of 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 the souls of others. Think of, think upon our little communion with our Lord. Think upon the little glory we are bringing to his great name. Think upon our matchless obligations to his infinite love. Each of us, each of these meditations is calculated to make us weep. As we think about our failures before God, are we moved with sorrow and grief. And that's a good thing if we are. And it's also a good thing for us to move from that place of weeping, godly sorrow to a place of grace, knowing that we're forgiven through the cross, through Jesus in our place. Jesus doesn't want us to, to linger forever in the guilt and the sorrow of our sin. He wants us to go to the cross and lay that burden down there where he died for our sins, where he demonstrated his love for us. Amen? And so let's close in prayer and let's reflect for just a moment. Lord, would you search our hearts 
and reveal any hurtful way within us. We acknowledge that we have sinned and we've failed in so many ways. But we thank you that that does not define who we are. But you have defined who we are through the gospel of grace. And you've changed who we are by your grace. You've made us new. You have redeemed. You have ransomed us. And so, Lord, may we live like the redeemed. May we think and speak like the redeemed. May we reflect the beauty of the gospel of grace. May we not lower the standard of godliness and righteousness in the name of grace. But God, may we be empowered by your Holy Spirit and your grace to live lives that bring you much glory. We thank you for the redemption that you accomplished through the cross. We thank you for the restoration of Peter. How you met him in his lowest point and you met him with mercy and you met him with grace. May we find that before you, before your throne of grace as well. And may we give that same grace out to others. May we be kind, treating others better than they deserve. Just as you've treated us better than we deserve. Lord, let your kingdom come and your will be done. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you, keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you. May he lift up the light of his countenance upon you. And may he give you his peace.